but never underestimate. I was thinking about this morning is that uh, this is a young community and we're, we're still relatively a young church. So guess what? We're all the new people here. <laughs> so we have a room full of new people. So if you don't know people or if there's people in here that you don't know, just go introduce yourself to each other, right? Because I'm telling you, a lot of us are, are, are we don't have extended family here. Or if we do, maybe we're not that, I mean, you just never know where we're coming from, right? And so let's, let's be the family of, of Christ uh, with and to each other. So uh, very thankful. And, and also there are some, some also some really behind the scenes uh, unsung heroes that, that help with the logistics. Uh, we got Mr. Keith over here who puts out the signs and puts up the chairs and helps like with a million different things. We got uh, a, another sound man back there. So it's kind of nice. I kind of feel worthless now, which is a good feeling because I used to be the only one. Well, Drew was good, but you know, so, so. <laughs> let's keep it real. He bashes on me. So I got I gotta, I gotta bash on him a little bit. So, um, anyhow, well, Hey, it's gotten better over the last couple of years, but here's a confession. My family has a crazy history of mother's day lunches. Mother's Day meals. I'm just just keeping it real, right? My oldest is in college. My youngest is camping with a friend, and my twins, I think, are helping in the nursery. So, so I can I can be totally vulnerable here. Uh, let's be honest. Mother's Day is probably the the number three holiday of importance to celebrate. It's Jesus, Jesus, Mom, right? It's it's Christmas, Easter, and then Mother's Day. Let's right, Amen. Okay, men, Amen. Men. Take a hint, right? Okay, all right. Now, all four of my kids know that they are deeply loved and adored and cherished by their mom, and they love and adore and cherish her in return. Like, they, I, have, I have raising, I was a mama's boy, complete mama's boy. I am raising four, the three mama's boys and a mama's girl, right? Like, they love, I love how my big old burly masculine offensive line playing in college will come home, and within 15 minutes, it's, mom, will you scratch my back? You know, like he knows he's loved by his mama, right? And, and all of my kids do. They know how truly amazing she is. But the problem has always been is that as soon as we go out to eat, we like to treat our mom. You know, we try, like to treat Nicole special on Mother's Day. Her favorite place to eat on Mother's Day is typically Texas Roadhouse because that takes her back to her roots. And, and so, like, we're, I'm dropping, like, coin, like, you wouldn't believe. This is a time, special time. It's kind of like, but, hey, it's for mom. Um, but the problem is, is while we're waiting my amazing, intelligent, fully functioning children devolve into semi-coherent feral monkeys. <laughs> it's always been that way, even from when they were little kids. Even like, I think this last year was our first maybe borderline acceptable behavior year, but it devolves into like, like, let's play a card game while we're waiting. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, they're throwing cards at each other and they're throwing rules at each other. They're just like, just at each other. And, and I would like to say that as the dad, I, I set a good example for them, but I just get really mad because I'm like, this is your mother. I was there. You have no idea what she went through for you to bring you into this world, right? And, and so like, I would get so mad at them. And instead of enjoying the moment, the kids are like, rah, rah, rah. I'm mad. And Nicole's kind of like, well, I guess Mother's Day just is always going to suck, right? Like, it's just bad. 
you maybe know exactly what I'm talking about, right? What's meant to be an amazing celebration of, of, of honoring and remembering and recognizing the significance of the moment that we're in devolves into something that's crazy, chaotic, and frustrating. We totally miss the moment that we're in. And I think that these tense moments help us to understand the next section that we're going to be getting into in Luke chapter 22. We're going to be going through verses 1 through 38. Jesus takes his crew out to eat and to celebrate what he's about to do, right? We've been following this story and we know that things are really ramping up. They're really escalating. And he wants to take them, so to speak, in that day and time out to eat because he wants them to have a pause and to to recollect themselves and to to see. And he's going to reveal something extremely earth shattering to them. It's going to literally turn the world upside down but it all hits the fan. They all go crazy. And the brokenness of even Jesus's closest followers is on full display. And it's going to show that even Jesus's closest followers need the real savior, the only one who can give them real freedom, even from themselves. So Luke chapter two, sorry, chapter 22, verse one says, the festival of unleavened bread, which is also called the Passover, was approaching. Okay. The festival of the unleavened bread is, is a part of Passover. Passover is when the uh, God, the, the Israelites were, were generations in slavery in Egypt, right? Like they, they had no national identity. They had, I mean, they had to practice their, their, their faith in private. Um, they just, they were wiped out. And this had been generations of this. And so God finally says, I've had enough. I'm going to deliver you. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to send my angel through Israel, through Egypt. And I'm going to kill the firstborn of every home. They had been through all these plagues, all these things like that. And Pharaoh's heart was still hardened. And finally, the, 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 the kill shot was, I'm going to come through on this night and I'm going to kill the firstborn of every home. And he says, except for you, my chosen people, you need to take a lamb and sacrifice it. Now they're used to this, right? Because generations before, they had never done it in their lifetime, but generations before, how they uh, were made right with God was that they would sacrifice an animal, oftentimes a lamb, and that blood would pay the price for their sin, for their brokenness. And so being slaves in Egypt, they hadn't been able to really do this, but then God says, we'll take a lamb, sacrifice it, and then paint the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of your home. And that way I know this house is covered by the blood of the lamb. And I'm going to skip over in the morning. You're all going to be alive. He's going to spare them. Right. And so that is what was celebrated. And, and God gave them some other instructions like, Hey, that's where we get unleavened bread because it's quick to make, it's quick to eat. We're supposed to eat it standing up. And, and so that was the celebration. That was the observance. Right. And so, um, the blood of the lamb is symbolic of how the priest would take a lamb and sacrifice it to atone for their sins, to make them right. Verse two, the leading priests and teachers of religious law were plotting how to kill Jesus, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. Now here's something interesting. Instead of celebrating the most impactful, like radical event in their religion's history, with their families and their friends 
and their congregations, what were they doing? Let's plot to kill. Let's scheme. Let's be given over to murderous anger, right? I mean, guys, let's not let this go over our head. Instead of celebrating God's deliverance, they were looking to kill. Now, what was really interesting is that these are the same people that would go to the temple to sacrifice lambs to atone for the people's sins. Unwittingly, they're about to do that in the ultimate way. Verses three through six. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who is one of the 12 disciples. And when he went to the leading priests and captains of the temple of the guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them, they were delighted and they promised to give him money. So he agreed and began looking for an opportunity to to betray Jesus so they could arrest him when the crowds weren't around. Satan knows exactly where to attack, right? He hits us closest to home. And oftentimes it is home. He knows what's going to hurt us the most. Here's something. When Jesus is about to do something big, big attacks are going to come. There's a flip side of looking at that. When big attacks are happening, you know Jesus is about to do something big. Um, uh, Friday. No, it was Saturday. That was Friday, Friday. Got my week all mixed up. All of a sudden, Tiffany uh, Brown, she lives like literally right across the street and down from us. She texted, are you at home? And I was like, yeah, what's up? She goes, my water heater exploded. Can you help me? <laughs> and, and I was like, yeah, mine happened. That happens all the time for us for some reason, right? Like every summer before we host our camp week, like crazy stuff happens, right? And so I was like, yeah, I know exactly what to do. I come over and she goes, yeah, we're getting ready to leave for vacation tomorrow. And I was like, ah, she goes, yes. And we really need this as a family and go figure this happens, right? And she remembered me saying, hey, when, when God is about to do something big, Satan's gonna attack. When Satan's attacking, it means that God's going to do something big. We see this here. The closest, one of the closest followers, one of the 12 closest followers of Jesus agrees to betray him. That is so incredibly low, right? It's so deep. It's so intimate. It's so personal, but yet it happens. But then tucked away here in verse seven, we're going to see this unassuming verse that is easy. It's a flyover verse, right? It's like nothing's in this verse. I don't need to underline it. I don't need to pay attention to it. I'm going to get on to the good stuff, right? But this little verse is the key for us to understand the entire Bible. Verse seven. Now the uh, the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. The Passover lamb is sacrificed. We're celebrating the sacrifice of the lamb that is sacrificed for our atonement to make us right with God, with each other, within ourselves and with all of God's creation. We're talking the, the, the joint of the old system, the old sacrifice, the old way to the new one. Jesus, the the lamb of God is about to be killed by the priests. And Jesus explains why. In verses 8 through 13, Jesus sends his disciples into town to look for a man carrying a jar of water. Now, again, we think, okay, that's kind of normal, right? No, men don't carry water. That's women's work. It was. We've come a long ways, fortunately. We have a long ways to go still. 
But in that culture, men didn't carry water because that was below them. That was for women to do. What's the significance of this? Is it that, here's the thing. Jesus says, look for this man who isn't, nothing is below him. He has a servant's sacrificial heart. You're going to see this man doing something that's kind of like, wait, you're doing that? You weirdo, right? No. He says, nothing is below him. He exudes the sacrificial, uh, sacrificial heart, the, the servant's heart that Jesus is about to demonstrate. And so he says, find him and then follow him. Say, hey, uh, where's this room that uh, Jesus has called, the Savior has called you to prepare? And, and so he says, yeah, here, here we go, right? Here's another little hidden gem is that the word extra room or guest room is the same word that 33 years earlier, Joseph and pregnant Mary and baby Jesus, unborn Jesus were denied, Right? Isn't that kind of cool? Because at that time, it was sort of like, no, we don't have room for you. We don't have extra room for you. And here, this servant who is carrying water, even though that's a shameable, like, that's below you thing, says, show me where the extra room is. And he said, it takes him right up to the upper room. Kind of a cool little, little thing coalescing together here, right? Then in Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20, we see, this is just, I, I love this passage. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Verse 17, then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves for I will not drink wine until the kingdom of God has come. Verse 19, he took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. This is huge. It is the fulfillment of the Old Testament system. It is the, it's the fulfillment of the Old Testament story. It's what the whole story was pointing to the entire time. And back in Genesis 15, God pulls Abraham, this, this, this nobody out in the desert, this old man with an old wife who had nothing, right? It's sort of like, well, I guess we're just going to die and, and dissolve into the sand of the desert, right? And God takes him and pulls him out and says, no, I believe in you. I'm going I'm to make this covenant relationship with you, and I'm going to enable you to become this great nation that thousands of years later, people will still be talking about. I'm making my covenant with you. It's this powerful experience, right? And then he gives this system to Moses then later on, right? They go through, they go through this, this ups and downs and ups and downs, and they're in slavery in Egypt. And then Moses leads them out, and God instructs him with this covenant of the laws, the system of how they're going to live out that covenant. God called them as his people. When they messed up, the blood of the lamb was sacrificed by a priest to pay for it. 
That was what was happening, right? Now, if that was the end of the story, we are stuck on a never-ending treadmill of work. Because I'm going to mess up, I'm going to have to sacrifice. I'm going to mess up, I'm going to have to sacrifice. I'm going to have to work really, really hard to make myself right with God. But that's not the end of the story. It's only the introduction. Jesus is saying that he is the fulfillment of that story. He is the fulfillment of that covenant. He is the new covenant. His body would be broken. His blood would be shed just like the sacrificial lamb to wipe away the debt of our sin and to set us free with true freedom moving forward. That the things that used to entangle us and that we were like, oh, we're afraid of and we were just all that. Like, no, now we are set free. He gives us into freedom. I like this saying that says, a promise is only as powerful as the person making it. A promise is only as powerful as the person making it. Now, I can tell Billy Brown, hey, I know you're going to have a 100-mile race in, in, in five weeks. I got your back, dude. I'm going to run every step of the way with you. I'm going to give you strength. And he's going to look at me and say, Querying, you won't make it out of the parking lot. <laughs> right? Like, I can, I, can, I can go to Rick and say, Rick, I know you're a helicopter pilot, and, and, and I know if you're just feeling under the weather, also, I'll t- just tap out. Let me know. I'll come and fly. A- I watched Airwolf growing up. I know how to make airplane sounds cultural reference. If you're under 40, you won't get it. Um, just YouTube it and enjoy the sound, right? I can, I, can tell, I can tell Justin or Nicole or Allie or any of you teachers, hey, if you're, I got your back. I'll come and help with your elementary school kids. Elementary school kids scare me, right? Like, like just looking at you, just you scare me, dude. Like you, you make my blood. They're like, I don't know. You get all insecure inside, right? I subbed for Nicole back when I was young, right? And, and, I, and I was like, oh my gosh, I went right to the flower shop and bought her a dozen roses. And I, they were waiting for her when she got home and she goes, what's this for? And I said, oh, good Lord, I try to do what you do day in and day out. And it about killed me. And she just laughed at me. I said, I'm serious, babe. It almost killed me. She goes, I made today as easy. You watched videos and did worksheets. That's all you didn't even teach, right? Like we can make promises, but if we don't have the power to fulfill those promises, what is it? Jesus, if he is only a good guy, if his goal was to only show us the way that we can do what he did, if he says, hey, you can do this too, you can do this too, you can do this too, guess what? We can't do it. Because if he's just a human being, he couldn't do it either. But if Jesus is God who pours himself out into his own creation, who held his own status of being God as nothing, and he comes into his own creation and says, of course I know how this works. I made it. This has been in the design. This is built into the code the entire time. I can do this because I wrote this. I created this. If he is the creator He has the power to sacrifice for us once and all. He's not a Tony Robbins. He's not an Oprah Winfrey who just spews fun little quirks of wisdom here and there, right? No, he is the fulfillment and the completion of what everything was leading up to this point. This passage 
is the fulcrum that all of history balances on. And the disciples are sitting there at dinner at Texas Roadhouse with Jesus being like, oh my gosh. No, not even close. Verse 21, Jesus says, but here at this table sitting amongst us as a friend is the man who will betray me. For it has been determined that the son of man must die, but the what sorrow, but what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him. Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him, but he still goes forward with it. He didn't say, well, you know, you or you're like, okay, you're over here. Everybody. No, he, he knows what's going to happen. And he still goes forward with it. And in verse 23 and, uh, 24, the disciples began to ask each other, which one of them would ever do such a thing, right? Oh my gosh, who would ever turn on you, Jesus? But then Jesus, <laughs> then in verse 24, it says, then they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. Think about this. And I don't know specifically, I've read somewhere where some people are saying, well, this is after everything happens, like in heaven, who's going to be the greatest in heaven? Because elsewhere it kind of talks about who's going to sit by you, who's going to sit by your right hand in the kingdom of God, and they're all fighting for that. Or another commentary I read actually said, they're talking about right here, right now. Like, well, if Jesus is going to get betrayed and killed, then who's going to take over for Jesus? What? They don't understand a thing he just said. He says, no, I am the new covenant. My body and bro, I am the sacrificial lamb. I am the lamb of God. I am forgiving you once and for all. And they're just sort of like right over the head. Well, who's going to be Jesus after Jesus? Because they don't understand the significance of the one who just made that promise. Now, it's easy to say that we believe in God and believe in Jesus and who he, who he is and what he did and what he does. But it's another thing to live that out because in the short term, we, what is uh, Paul David Tripp says, we're eternal amnesiacs to where we are. It's like, we forget eternity all the time. And the shiny things of the here and now are like, Oh God, I love you. Ooh, look at this shiny thing in life. Right? Like our job, our toys, our, our relationships, our, our status, our power, our money, our fill in the blank, whatever it is for you, right? My sense of justice, my sense of what I desire, I, I, I deserve to be happy, blah, 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 blah. Well, guess what? A hundred years is like a blink of an eye. It's, it's nothing in the sight of eternity. We lose sight of eternity and we replace Jesus with all sorts of things. And most of them revolve around us. They miss the true earth shattering seismic significance of the moment that they're in. But Jesus handles his chaotic dinner a little bit better than I tend to. Verse 25, Jesus told them in this world, the kings and great men lorded over their people. Yet they are called friends of the people. I love the air quotes. I mean, it doesn't say air quotes, but it gives quotes, right? And what that friends of the people means is benefactor. In their political system of the day, votes were bought. And so what people that were aspiring politicians and government rulers, they would be very generous with the people. 
They would throw festivals and, and, and banquets and sporting events, and they would build parks, and they would have these great public projects, and they would give them temples for whatever they wanted to have a temple for, and they would do all these different things. Why? Because they loved the people so much, and they wanted the people to be happy? No, because they wanted the votes. And so they would, they would literally prostitute themselves out to get power. Now, the ironic thing that Jesus is saying is that they're, they're trying to gain power from people, and we willingly give the power to people who then will use the power against us. That's what was happening here. And he says, you know what? Don't be like them. Verse 26, but among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should be the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the, at the table, of course, but not here. He says, of course, any other banquet going on in the city right now, the one at the table is by far greater than the servant, but not in this room. For I am among you as one who serves. Jesus says, you think that that guy out there watering, do, do, you know, carrying the jar of water that nobody should, that's below him, that's nothing compared to what I'm going to do for you. I am here to serve. It's a radically different way. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out for only your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. I actually like, if you look at that word cling to, actually means grasp, to sought after, to be, to be like, whoa, you know, it's like I see a motorcycle right now and I just obsess about that motorcycle. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how am I going to get this? How many? And I'm like, ah, that, that's what he's saying. He's God and he's kind of like, okay, he gives it up. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble passion, uh, position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. That is what Jesus did. Luke closes out the chapter, uh, sorry, this section, sorry. Talking with Simon Peter, the rock, right? And, and he says, you know what? You're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, oh, no, not me, man. I'm solid. I am with you. I will die with you. You remember the old, um, um, who sang the song with uh, Robin Hood, the, the good one with Kevin Costner? Brian Adams. Brian Adams. And everything I do, I do it for. No, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. Quit singing that there's another song that came out so like uh, was it who uh, i'd die for you I'd, um um oh my gosh was it bruno mars yeah thank you this is like you know it's like i would hear that and they were like dad just let him sing i was like no because he's lying he wouldn't take a bullet for me no he'd be like pew i'm out right like we can make all these bold promises a, a promise is only as powerful as the person who makes it and Jesus calls Peter out. He says, no, you're not. 
He won't, yeah, you'll die for me, but not the way you think. You're going to deny me three times first, and one of them is going to be to a little girl. (laughs) But Jesus exercises grace, and he says, but when you've come back to your senses and you repent, you're going to come back to me, and I want you to strengthen your brothers and sisters. Jesus doesn't give up on Peter just because he knows he's going to screw up. He says, no, 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 you're going to screw up. You're all a screw up. But when you repent and come back to me, I have a purpose for you. I have something really big in store for you. I love that. That is grace. That is, that is showing how, how God, uh, it, it's not our strength, but it's his strength. Right? And then Jesus says, hey, you're going to go through some hard times. But you know what? Just like I've taken, like I've taken care of you for the last three years, I'm going to keep doing that as long as the earth is around. The whole point is that Jesus is the only perfect sacrifice that can wipe away our past, our sin, our brokenness, our slavery. A lot of times we, our, our, our culture wants to downplay sin because it's sort of like, eh, it's not that bad. I'm a good person. God knows my heart. Remember, I was reading in a passage where it says, God knows your heart, right? That was a couple of weeks ago in Luke where he says, God knows your heart. Because they were all saying, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. You know my heart. Yeah, he goes, I do. <laughs> and I know how dark it can be sometimes. People say, I, I, I get ad nauseum. It's like, Jason, you're such a good person. Well, thanks. I, I kind of am. But you also don't know like the struggles that I have. Because I kind of look at myself and I was kind of like, I'm a mess. I struggle. I sin. But the good thing is, is I'm not my own savior. I am washed by the blood of the sacrificial lamb of God. And that's what makes me free of that slavery. It's huge because he says, only I can wipe that away. Only Jesus can make us right standing in God's sight. He's the only one that can restore that relationship with him and with each other within ourselves and within all of his creation. Do not miss out on that freedom. A lot of times we want to either justify it or deny it or hide it or just jump all in with it, right? Don't miss that freedom. So as we lead up to Easter and to celebrate how Jesus defeats sin and death. We need to step back, but also look a little bit closer, right? One, do we know how we're stuck in slavery to sin? Are there areas that we've maybe justified or hidden or excused? We have other people saying, ah, that's not a big deal. Ah, that's not a big deal. How are we suffering in slavery right now? What are the things that are controlling us? Guys, I want to be real right? We don't just do all this just so that we can feel like, oh, that was great. What up? No, we need the good news because guess what? There's bad news in our lives too. We have to be able to take a real look at that. How are we suffering in slavery right now in our lives? What wants to define us other than Jesus? What are the things that obsess our thoughts, that control our thoughts? What are, the, what are the things that we naturally run to to be our saviors, right? Is that life is hard. When life gets hard, we're going to look to something. What are those somethings that we're looking to? And can they do what only Jesus can do? 
Because the problem is that sometimes those quote-unquote saviors actually ensnare us deeper and pull us further away from the one who can actually save us. Jesus is the perfect lamb of God, the only one who brings us true freedom now and forever. Let's run to him. So this morning, um, I was actually uh, finishing up a devotional that I was doing. It was talking about pride and was looking at that Philippians 2 passage. And it was really cool because it was looking at verses 10 and 11, how how, um, every knee will bend, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in the comments of this devotional, one of the guys that's in the group that I am, he says, you know what? I just went and got on my hands and knees and just declared verbally, Jesus Christ is Lord. And he said, I wept and it was so good. And so I'm alone in my house. Everybody else is still asleep. I'm just getting ready to come here this morning. I'd have my coffee and I got reviewed all my notes. And I was kind of like, huh, that's really cool. I need to do that. Guys, this morning, I kid you not, if you'd have looked in my window, you'd have seen this big old goofy looking guy on his hands and knees laughing and crying at the same time. Because when you declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, there's only one Lord. No, that is not a pedestal that is shared by more than one person or thing. And when we declare verbally over our lives that Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life, it puts everything else in its place. Nothing else can share that pedestal with Jesus, only him. And so all the things that we struggle about, all the things that we're afraid of, all the things that we're obsessed about, all the things that we're passionate about, find its place way underneath that Lord. And when we declare that he is the Lord over our lives, it is such a freeing thing. And here's the cool thing. We don't, you know, when we go vote, right? We don't say, oh, you, oh, president, you, oh, governor, you, oh, mayor, are my Lord, right? Maybe we, (laughs) that that, kind of ended back in 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 the middle ages, right? But we need to get back to doing that with Jesus. I'm telling you, there's something so freeing about physically acting out a surrender to Jesus. So today, we're going to wrap up our time with worship here of acting out, of celebrating, of observing what Jesus did for us. He had an upper room. We have an upper room. He had followers of Jesus. We're followers of Jesus. He took a a, a loaf of bread and a cup of wine or grape juice. We have both just in case to cover all our bases, right? And he said, hey, this is my body that's broken for you. This is my blood that was going to be spilled in the courtyard, on the way as he's carrying his cross, as he's being nailed to the cross, as he's being raised on the cross, as he's dying and died on the cross until he was dead. That's the price that I pay for what my followers are going to be enslaved by. I bought your freedom. You're free. Live like free people. So we're going to, you know, invite the, I want to invite the, the band up and, and we're going to sing two songs. And I want to invite you to come up and, and just take a piece of bread and, and dip it in one of the cups. And then to remember Jesus's words, it says, this is my body. This is my blood. I do this for you. Just say, thank you.
Say, thank you, Jesus. You are the Lord of my life. And then sometime today, if you want to like, we're, you know, we try to keep things pretty normal here. We don't want to like weird anybody out or anything. But at some point today, if you want to bend the knee, (laughs) if you want to physically just get on a knee on your hands and knees and just say out loud, Jesus Christ, you are the Lord of my life. Do it. And in that moment, just know you're forgiven. Whether that be the first time of, of, no, I've been slogging away. I've been on this treadmill of performance. I've been trying to be a good person. I've been trying to be a good religious person. I've been trying to, you know, all these things like that, or I've never felt like I've been good enough. I've never done enough to be measured up. I haven't been considered worthy. I, whatever it is for you, know that in that, in that act that Jesus did on the cross for us, when he was broken for us, our eternity changed. And all it takes is bending the knee. All it takes is surrendering to that love, to that sacrifice. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your love. I thank you for how you didn't just give us a list of things that we're supposed to do to qualify ourselves, to, to, uh, to make ourselves clean, or to be worthy, or to save ourselves. But instead, God, you paid the price for us. God, a lot of times we struggle because it's kind of an archaic idea of sacrifice for our sins, but God, we still live in that same system to where when we do something wrong, the price has to be paid. God, when a relationship has been broken, we have to say, I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? God, I thank you that we don't have to come to you and give you a whole list of all the things that we've done good to where we're deserving of your forgiveness. Instead, you look at us and you say, I already did. Now let's go. God, I pray that in, in, in the lives of those of us in the room or, or watching online or listening to later on, God, I, I pray that, that, that your spirit just reveals to us the things that have been ensnaring us, the things that have been enslaving us, the things that we've either excused or denied or, or just worked really hard on our own. We are free. God, you mean for us to live in joy, in peace, in love. God, 2,000 years ago, as, as you promised these things to your 12 disciples, one of which would commit suicide because he betrayed you, one, uh, sorry, 10 of which would be, would be martyred because of their faith in you, one would be exiled onto an island by himself to live out the rest of his days. God, you designed them to live out whatever time they had left with joy and peace and love. Because they were free. They weren't dependent on their situations, on their circumstances. God, you define their lives just like you do ours. So God, I pray for your healing. I pray for your forgiveness. I pray for for us to just let down our arms. The things that we've weaponized, the things that we've turned against each other, that we've held against each other, that that we've used against each other. God, that we would let you define who we are. 
our relationships, our jobs, our families, our friendships, the way we use our time, our resources. God, thank you for your love. God, thank you that when we bend the knee, we are not afraid of what we're going to look up to. But instead, as a loving father, you say, get up here. I love you. God, we thank you so much for that. So God, we celebrate your gift this morning in communion. Thank you for your sacrifice. Praise in your name. Amen.